0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series.
1: So good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Sunday night practice group. I'm, I'm wondering if there's anyone here at Common Ground for the first time. Okay, all right, nobody knew. Um, my name is Wynne Fricke, and I'm, I'm one of the co-founders of Common Ground way back in 1993. And I'm substituting for Mark Nunberg, who's uh, probably, as you know, he's the guiding teacher here, and he's uh, out at Spirit Rock now uh, teaching a nine-day retreat out there. So um, he'll be back in, in mid-August. Um, uh, so so um, several weeks ago, during the Buddhist studies, uh, Mark asked me if I would, um, again, step in for him and and give a talk about impermanence um, <clears throat> you know I'm, I'm often happy to give a talk but usually I just give a talk in things I feel really secure with um, so I gave a talk in impermanence and realized sort of the many many places where there's sort of still holes in my evolving understanding and um, so I'm gonna give it a second shot and uh, um, and I and I just like also just uh, to to be on the edge of where I am in my practice, to bring that here and for us to talk and discuss and draw on the wisdom of the room. So um, so if you've been coming to Common Ground for a while, you'll know that impermanence is central to the Buddhist teachings, right? Like imperman- impermanence is uh, a big deal. And you know, and I'm asking myself, well, how do I relate to it really? You know, how is it, how is the, the truth of it, the concept of it integrated into my life, into my daily understanding? How can I let this truth mature in me? And so these are sort of the, the active questions. Um, and the Buddha said, uh, better a single day of life perceiving how things rise and fall than to live out a century and not perceive their rise and fall. So we get the sense this is a big deal. And when I was thinking about sort of uh, how I relate to impermanence, um, something that Stephen Levine said many years ago came to my mind, and maybe you have heard heard of Stephen Levine as a really important early Buddhist teacher in this country, And I don't have an exact quote, it was just something I heard him say. It was something like this, Our path of practice can be described as a process of grieving. That really stuck with me, um, this idea that our, our practice is a process of grieving. And this feels to me related to this idea of impermanence that we are are born into the world with this contract that that everything that we love and cherish will be separated from us, right? That's our contract at birth. Um, Yeah. So not only our loved ones, but, but our ideals, you know, the times in our life that we cherish that go by, right? Our bodies, our health, our beauty... Our passing animals, our loved ones. Um, there's a um, there's a traditional chant uh, in Buddhist monasteries in Asia, um, and it's called the Five Remembrances, and it's chanted every morning. And I'll read it. Um, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved, and pleasing will become otherwise, will become separated from me." So the five remembrances, this is a daily uh, reflection that was encouraged, that is encouraged in monastic settings. And if you ever have been involved in Zen and you go to a know they strike the Han, right? They, the Doan strikes the Han to call the yogis. Um, it's a heavy, solid board that we strike with the mallet. Um, and with that, there's a chant, may I respectfully remind you, great is the matter of birth and death. All is impermanent, quickly passing. Be awake each moment. So in all the the grandness and ritual of Zen, like this is chanted, uh, to inspire um, the meditators at the start of each sitting session. So um, the Buddha said that there there are these three characteristics, and I'll I'll talk about them in more detail later, that, that need to be understood. So there's this characteristic of uh, impermanence, which is the subject of this talk, there's the characteristic of dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness, and there's the characteristic of emptiness and not self. And the characteristics need to be understood, so that's the first step. And in in this word uh, in Pali, under understand also means to stand under. So there's this this idea of standing under this truth and what what brings to my mind when I think of this standing under, it's like being under like a canopy of redwood trees or a sky that is pervasive uh, so it so much so that it needs to be embraced. there's no resistance, no argument. this is how it is. So this is the kind of understanding, the kind of, um, nature of insight that we deepen into slowly right it's not distance it's pervasive it's integrated into us the pali word for also for understanding also translates as vision so right understanding samaditi when we see clearly and i like i like the idea of turning toward our grief as an anchor you know instead of running from our grief but turning toward our grief being being just nestled in there with our heartache and let that be a guidepost let that be a teacher you know and i think because if we keep it as a teacher we learn to grow compassion and we learn not to live in a superficial way We learn to ask important questions, not to live in distraction. Maybe some of you um, have read the series of books by Carlos Castaneda, right, and his teacher, Don Juan. And, uh, you know, I read them, devoured them in the 80s, right, but there was this image, you might recall, that uh, Don Juan said that from the moment that we're born, death is at our left shoulder, you know, and one day death will tap us. And we can use death as an advisor. We're aware of this presence. And if there's ever a moment where we're confused, we can ask the advice of death. You know, and that can be very quickly clarifying. It clarifies when we're petty. Um, and I won't say more. So we, we see that. You know. This is a beautiful poem by um, David White I wanted to include. He's a, He's a British poet. Um, He says, Those who will not slip beneath the still surface of the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown away by those who wished for something else. And these are the words of the Buddha. He says, the perceiving of impermanence bhikkhus, bhikkhus are practitioners, the perceiving of impermanence practitioners developed and frequently practiced removes all sensual passion, removes all passion for material existence, removes all passion for becoming, removes all ignorance, removes and abolishes all conceit of I am. And I wanted to just address this word passion for for a moment. Um, I'm not sure exactly the the Pali translation, but there is this word nibida, um, which means serene disenchantment, serene disenchantment. Um And that's that's uh, you know when when, for instance, in this instance, if we've seen the characteristic of impermanence, um, we know of its uh, the unreliability of the object that we're grasping after, um, we become disenchanted, we release. And I, I feel like, Passion, maybe a word that could equally go in in Buddha's words here is the grasping. So I'm just going to do that, and I don't mean to change, these are my words, not the Buddha's words, but it works for me also. So the perceiving of impermanence bhikkhus developed and frequently practiced removes all sensual grasping, removes all grasping for material existence all grasping for becoming, removes all ignorance, removes and abolishes all conceit of I am." So I think what we learn in the deepening of insight into these three characteristics, into dukkha, into impermanence, into the empty nature of phenomenon, right we learn an unshakability, we learn to let go, and we're not tossed around anymore with craving, right? We know how that is. Tossed around by grasping after pleasant and rejecting unpleasant. We know this very well, right? And then I, I feel like what we develop is a kind of ballast, you know, that, that the weighted center of a boat that's meant to keep it upright. So it's not, it's not easily tossed around. And so I feel like that ballast is a beautiful metaphor for what allows us to remain present, unshakable. And it's through insight, right? It's not the wanting of insight, but insight. So, so this tendency toward greed toward craving, toward hatred, toward a vision, toward aversion is uprooted or more and more uprooted, more and more diminished. And what happens when ignorance, craving, and hatred are uprooted? And this is a really important teaching. The Buddha called these the three unwholesome roots in the heart, right? And I'm just going to say this. Uh, illustration because it, it's very powerful for me. You know, in this wheel of samsara, the wheel of living and dying, the three unwholesome roots circle in the hub. They circle in the hub. Craving, hatred, and ignorance propel this wheel of samsara. And they're illustrated through uh, through a pig, a bird, and a snake. A snake is hatred. And um, a bird is craving, and the the pig is ignorance, and they're all chasing each other's tail like this. And sometimes the the hatred and craving is seen born out of the mouth of the pig, so ignorance is actually the root. Hatred and craving is an offshoot of ignorance. I, I love that illustration. But when these three unwholesome roots are uprooted, what's left is are actually the divine abodes, right? The, the qualities of heart, of loving kindness, of compassion, of sympathetic joy, of equanimity, that deep equipose. And speaking again of disenchantment or... Dispassion. Uh, this is the uh, this is a statement made by Tani um, Bhikkhu. She's a, a former nun uh, in the Thai Forest tradition, and she says, dispassion can catalyze a deep inquiry that goes beneath the surface of a lifestyle that has become superficial due to the endless seeking and sensory overload, dysfunctional assumptions, and distracted behavior. So again, this is my point in bringing this up is I think the shadow of what we can see as dispassion is that we become remote or cool, disinterested, you know And it's actually the opposite, right? It frees the mind up. If we're not lost, right? If we're not lost in clawing after what we want, if we're not lost in pushing away what we don't want, right? these qualities of heart get to bloom. And loving kindness and compassion are full and warm. And I almost want to say passionate, right? They have this quality of aliveness and intimacy with life rather than distance. So I think, you know, the you know, I think one way to practice is just in the simple reflection on impermanence in a very intellectual, you know, conceptual way, right? I mean, I think what we do in a sort of unexamined way, we, we, we superimpose an idea of permanence around experience. We superimpose a sense of I, right, a permanence around the sense of I, Permanence around, um, well, and and it's not like uh, intellectually we think it through and we realize nothing is, of course, permanent, but there is, I think, this subtle, unexamined way of just imagining permanence when permanence isn't there. I was thinking today just even about like common ground, you know, sort of. The way it began, which it began in in the living room of Mark. Mark in my living room. Mark is my partner, right? And it began with an intention. We need support for our practice, so we're going to open our living room and invite other people to sit with us and practice with us. There was no intention to expand, to do anything. It was just a, an intention to protect the practice and to continue and just... Stitch by stitch, it grew. People came around, and then there started to be a Wednesday night practice group. And um, about a year, you know, into being open, in maybe 1994, seven people showed up on a Wednesday night practice group. And I was like, oh, we have a sangha. It's all we need, you know. Beautiful, right? Beautiful. And it just kept going, right? All the conditions coming together, all of you coming together, Right? dollar by dollar in, in our little cardboard Donna box and, and sort of this changing impermanent nature and here we are and I need to catch myself to not impose a sense of permanence on this community right like this community like everything is ephemeral like everything is fragile and dependent on so many conditions known and unknown conditions that are invisible Right, that allow us all together to be here together. And so I, I I reflect on that. I reflect, you know, not to not to hold, right? It's it's its own machine and, and it's it's beyond my part in it, right? So no no clinging. It has its own life. You know, we all can influence, right? We all can influence, but none of us can control. I'm thinking of uh, Renee Howard, our board chair, who, um, who she really oversaw the purchase and kind of uh, renovation of this building. And um, she was about my age when when she died, and it was really a a sudden diagnosis. You know, she went to the doctor and had some digestive issues, and all of a sudden, you know, the young technician taking her X-rays sees. Her liver is so filled with tumors, She doesn't. He, the technician doesn't know how she's breathing. How is it that you're alive and standing? And then she died, right? And the burr tree, the burr oak on the front, we planted 10 years ago when that happened. And it's now, it's big and it's beautiful. And Rini's poem is, uh, her morning poem, sorry, she was a friend. Um. You'll see her poem on the shed, but, but holding that close, right? Because it's, it's, it's not just Rini, this is my story, right? This is, this is all of us. So there are these macro-levels and micro-levels of understanding and permanence, right? The slow changes that we see in the seasons, in our bodies, right, in the natural world, you know, knowing even the solar system is impermanent, right, you know. And I don't know anything about physics, but apparently even at atomic levels, nothing is static, right? Everything is changing. So the Buddha said, um, there is no materiality whatever, O oh practitioners, no feeling, no perception, no formations, no consciousness, whatever that is permanent. So although we can look at the material world and the impermanence of the material world, the Buddha instructed or was concerned with our immediate experience of body and mind. That's, that's where we direct the attention, right? And um, yeah, no conditioned formation of any physical or mental phenomenon exists for more than a moment. So, this is the micro level, right? This is the moment to moment birth and death of experience, right? Of phenomena flashing. You know, according to the Abhidhamma. What is it? Uh, uh, the lifetime of any phenomena is less than a billionth of a second. I don't know how they measure that. I have no idea. <laughs> how that, but, but this flashing quality, birth and death, birth and death, birth and death, and that's all we can know. So um, I just want to talk about Vipassana for a second. So what we do, seated here on the cushion, right? Like, just even in this guided meditation, if you could hear me, you know, uh, the last exploration was to attend to impermanence, tend, attend to change that's happening on mental and physical levels, right? So we can, we can bring our attention to that. Um, and in, in the seated posture of Vipassana, right? Like, why, why do we sit? Why is this important? Like, that's, a, that's an important question, and it, it's because the environment is really simplified, right? And the mind can settle. So the mind has the opportunity to gather itself, to, be in, to, to gain power, to see clearly. So that's what we practice, right? So when you're, you're sitting and your mind is off, right, this is natural. But the training is to bring the mind back, that sort of uh, stability, that ballast that we're looking for. So the pa of vipassana uh, means not just seeing things clearly, but seeing things extraordinarily clearly. So there's, you know, in in the activity of our daily life, that level of concentration and clarity is difficult, right? So this this is the purpose in this simplified environment. <clears throat> so what whatever the mind is knowing, right? In the, in the moment, any phenomenon, we, we pay attention to its characteristics. So I think um, in terms of practice, we combine the reflection of daily life and seen impermanence permanence in daily life and what we see as we're seated in concentration. And this allows a shift in perception, right? We move from wrong view to right view, from seeing through obscurations to to seeing clearly. There's another um, nice word, a nice Pali word, I'll say it. Uh, Yatabhutam pajanati. Pajanati is to know, to understand, to discern, to distinguish, to find out. It has all of those meaning, meanings. Pajanati. And then, yatubhutan bhutan is the true nature. So one who sees clearly the true nature of things. One who sees clearly the true nature of things. So what does right view, samaditi, what does right view recognize? What does it see? So Ajahn Punadama was here um, some months ago giving a talk on impermanence and I really appreciated how he, he broke down um, what we're seeing in right view. And first of all, he said, we're able to, uh, uh, he said, the discrimination of objects, um, which objects of mind lead to liberation, which ob- objects lead otherwise. And he said, awareness is not fuzzy. So whatever object the mind is knowing, like we know whether a sensation is soft or whether it's rough, right? We know whether a feeling is pleasant or unpleasant or neither unpleasant or pleasant, right? We know. There's nothing fuzzy, right? Awareness sees. So that's number one, clear discrimination of objects. And then number two is what I pointed to before, the characteristics common to all objects, all objects that rise into consciousness. So what are those three characteristics? Right? The unsatisfactory nature, the impermanent quality, and the quality of not-self. These need to be discerned. So, So awareness functions on these two different levels. And these, th- uh, these three characteristics um, can't be fully separated. They inter-are, right? They're in relationship. Because all phenomena are vanishing moment to moment, they can't be relied upon, right? We can't hold them. They can't satisfy us in the way we want to be satisfied. And this is Ajahn Funadhamo again. He says... It's not that dukkha or unsatisfactoriness exists because we see things imperfectly. It's because things are imperfect. It's an inherent quality of phenomenon themselves. There is an incompleteness and imperfection because they don't have the ability to satisfy. So, you know, when we arrive when we arrive <laughs> at this understanding that all things go away, right? We let go. Right? We let go, and it's it's it this is a natural result, right? It's not like, oh, I have to let go. It's not that. We let go because we see there's fruitlessness in hanging on to what's leaving, what's ah, it's gone, 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 right? So then what is wrong view? What do we normally do? I think that's a really good question, too. Like, what do we normally do? And um, when I was coming back from New Jersey a few weeks ago, there was a young man in the security line behind me, and he was wearing a T-shirt. And it just caught my attention. And in big, bold letters, it it said, um, I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. <laughs> and i thought well that is a statement that is a philosophy right you know like yeah and then i just i just was thinking about it oh yeah like this is the engine this is the engine of the wheel of samsara right <laughs> That's it. Oh. Mm. and and also it's it's not like there's anything inherent Inherently wrong, because we do that all the time, every moment. I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it, right? That, that's our MO. But it's when that MO is infused uh, with self and when it doesn't discern the truth of impermanence and emptiness, right? When those insights aren't, aren't integrated, it's our only refuge. I got it. It's the only, it's the only choice, right? Because we don't see anything deeper. So that's, that becomes a prison because that thing that we finally got won't ultimately satisfy, so we have to run to the next thing. So this is an inaccurate perception to perceive that, that craving after this object, which is ephemeral, if we just did it right, if we just strategize better, it would finally satisfy us, right? This is Ajahn Punadamo. This is from the same talk. It's, it's online. I just lifted it right from his talk. He says, our consciousness at each moment of time is seeking to take an object. This is the nature of consciousness. In a sense, it's trying to complete itself. It's trying to satisfy itself by experience. And the craving is for the next shiny thing, the next object. And because the objects are dukkha, because they are inherently unable to complete or satisfy the mind, the mind is driven by craving to seek the next object. This is the underlying engine of existence. So I, you know, I gave the example last time. Like just even when we enter the, the meditation hall, right? We have preferences. We have preferences of where we want to sit, whether we have a blanket or not. Blanket. We choose this is the cushion. I see it. I like it. I want it. I got it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> cushion. But we might find, for instance, that the air conditioner is. We sat in a place where the air conditioner is just blowing on us, right? And so what the mind will do right it sees a cushion from across the room although it's stuck here right but strategizing how can i get that cushion i see it i want it you know so basically we lurch out of the present moment right we lurch out of the present in craving and so that's the moment to be seen right when we actually we lose our life we lose our life you know it's happening all the time where, where we can't tolerate the unpleasantness of how it is in this moment. And so the mind is strategizing, lurching, leaning forward, trying to fix. So and I think we have two wrong views. I think we, we feel like we're, we're suffering because we haven't strategized well enough. We have that idea, or we blame the object. Like, like I'm not satisfied. I didn't marry the right person. I don't have the right, you know, my cat is not gentle the way I want my cat to be. He's a football player, you know, or I didn't get the right ice cream flavor. I did, you know, what, whatever it is, we blame the object. It's the object is the reason we, have, we are not content, that we're not satisfied. So we invest in clinging um, instead of investigation. Yeah, I want to tell just one more example. You know, early in my practice, in the early '90s, I went to um, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts on a on a long retreat and. Um, and I had, you know, I was doing my walking meditation. This, is, this was a, um, yeah, it was a combined metta and insight vipassana retreat. And, and I was doing my walking meditation and feeling really, really settled, really happy. You know, the, the floor was beautiful. There was a stained glass window in the room. And, and just for whatever reason, the conditions came together that the mind was really stable and content. Really settled, just into knowing the sensations in the body, moment to moment. You know, so you you walk 20 paces, you turn around, and you come back, and and um, yeah, and the mind was really gathered and feeling the wholesomeness and joy of this. And then I saw, because my mind was settled, I saw, I imagined Michelle McDonald Smith, who was the teacher that I was meeting, that I was going to meet with her, and I was going to tell her about my settled. Walking meditation. Right? I was going to tell her about it, right? And um, and she would approve of me as a yogi, right? <laughs> Whatever. So, so that was the that was sort of the ripple of the mind, right? And so there and then you know the, then I'm starting. This is this is what I'm going to report to her when I see her, you know, and but I was I was really happy. I saw it. I saw it immediately, right? And and I could let it go because I felt the scent of cling I felt the clinging and it was suffering. It felt bad, you know. It's just was like whew. but then it came up again. It was like a hundred times, a hundred times it came up. And and this is really important in your practice to let that hundred times come up. It's not about controlling, it's about seeing. We just need to see. If your practice becomes about controlling, you will be exhausted. You will be exhausted. So just like, and that was that experience, just seeing this little, this little hungry ghost in me reach out, uh, and it had that quality of sort of stretching away from myself. There's this interesting word asava, um, which means basically affliction of the mind. Affliction of the mind, but at its at its root, the etymology is. To flow or to outflow, to leak, right? And it and and I really love that because that was the, that was the feeling of like a leak, of this of this seclusion, of this refuge, right? It was a leak, and we can imagine, like this fabrication of imagining Michelle approving. You know, sending her approval to me as a yogi—like this—is a construction, right? In my mind, in the moment, right? We can imagine that there's that we there's some nourishment in that, that we draw some satisfaction from that, you know. And and the Buddha has a metaphor for this tendency of the mind to sort of um, try to draw satisfaction out of these fabrications, and he. He said that you know there's this image of a, a dog chewing a bone that has no flesh left on it. It's just chewing the bone, trying to get nourishment from the bone. And it begins to taste its own blood, so it feels like it's getting some nourishment, but it's actually just its own blood that it's feeding off of. It's a really kind of visceral sort of feeling. And and I feel like that act that's an accurate metaphor for a false satisfaction a really flimsy satisfaction that doesn't really nourish, that doesn't nourish. And this is, um, I'll just go on a little bit more. This is uh, Andy Olensky. He says, it's important to recognize the way in which ignorance and craving support and reinforce one another. If we understood that the objects we cling to or push away are inherently insubstantial, unsatisfying, and unstable we would know better than to hang on to them. But we cannot get a clear enough view of these characteristics, these three characteristics because our perception of the objects is distorted by the force of our wanting them to be the source of security. I was um I was on uh, <clears throat> another retreat a few years ago with Sayada Vivekananda and this is a uh, this is the Mahasi, Sa- uh, Mahasi sayada style retreat which is it's a real pressure cooker you know it's like um, alternate sitting and walking meditation all day and it's like on your breaks you, you're supposed to be mindful of your eating and mindful of your sleeping and what's the first thought to come into consciousness as you wake up. So it's sort of like, you know, a very firm container of paying pain attention. And and um, Sayada Vivekananda gave me the instruction to observe endings of phenomena, to observe endings. And um, I sort of just sort of, well, like, what do you mean endings? And what do you mean phenomena? And what, you know, so, like, I experimented with that for a few days and, and um tried to report and was a little irritated and 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 he you know, he said to me, Well when you've been you've been teaching dance for a long time, right? So you've been a, a good teacher and, and you when you see a dance student that doesn't quite integrate a principle or doesn't quite understand um, the lesson intended, he says, Well that's what I'm seeing with you. You're not quite you're not quite you know, grokking this, right? And and um, so I had to really break it down. It was like, okay, the you know, I, I went through each sense gate. You know, the end of scene, you know, the end of scene. When does a, when does the visual field shift? You know, the end of scene, the end of a sensation in the body, the end of a thought. What's the contour of the end of a thought, right? The end of a smell. How are all these things? So I really broke it down, and I really, I just Surrendered myself to the observing of endings, the different ways objects in consciousness disappear. How do they vanish? Right? And I really started to see, I started to see endings. And, and his point earlier, and that, that I was being resistant to seeing this, uh, is because mostly we see births, we see beginnings. Beginnings catch our attention, right? We're everywhere, you know, but we don't notice the vanishing quality. And so it was a really powerful instruction for me to um, look at endings. And then in seeing how objects so thoroughly disappear, like it's just gone and gone and gone, moment to moment to moment. And this was really powerful. And really getting that past is a construction, that future is a construction. And when I'm lost in a, in memories, or I'm lost in planning, it's truly delusion. There's truly some level of ignorance that's happening. I'm not seeing that I'm lost, but I'm in this rabbit hole of somewhere in the past, which is just a construction in the in the moment, right? It's just a construction. So I it, this really shifted my practice in terms of. Um, I notice my mind doesn't have interest in that. I really, it really doesn't have that interest in like um, being lost. I, I just see that that, that that shift, that that was a really important shift in that seeing. This is um, Charlotte Joko Beck from her book, Nothing Special. She says, There is nothing we are less interested in than demolishing our fantasy structures. We have a secret fear that if we demolish them all, we'd be demolishing ourselves. Yeah. Um, But I, I, I feel like the opposite is true. I feel like what we discover when we demolish our fantasy structures is a refuge, is a place of rest, and it's a place that's expansive that there's relief, that there's release. And this is just in a moment, right? And it's just in a moment. And we can be completely entangled in one moment, the next moment arises, and we can be completely free. (coughs) So we get comfy, we get comfy with the ephemeral, uncertain nature of everything that comes into consciousness. We, we attune to it. We feel it. We feel into it. Um, and that's our practice, right? And I think a refuge blooms out of that intimacy. And it's mysterious. It's mysterious, that refuge. One of my favorite teachers, this is Ajahn Sumedho. he says... Through being awake, alert, and no longer attached, we realize cessation, endings. We realize cessation, and we abide in emptiness where where we all merge. There's no person there. People may arise and cease in the emptiness, but there's no person. There's just clarity, awareness, peacefulness, and purity And I'll just end with this poem which I just saw today. Um, It's by Donna Falds which somehow speaks to me about like this arriving in the middle of our experience, arriving in the moment. Um, It's beautiful. She says, uh, it's called Awakening Now. And she says, Why wait for your awakening? The moment your eyes are open seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons. Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells, prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid, and my motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect, and surely I haven't practiced enough. My meditation isn't deep and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails, and the refrigerator isn't clean. Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. So I thought, you know, we have we have a little time. We could do have a conversation, some Q and A, or any responses, thoughts about the talk, and then maybe for the last few minutes we'll just do one more reflection together uh, in quiet. But. But um, let's just see if there's any responses or questions that come up for you. We can pass this around.
2: Thank you. Um, you know, I think we've all had our share of grief or will have from uh, resisting impermanence. And, but I think we kind of put a negative value judgment on impermanence that maybe should not be there. Um Thich Nhat Han says that because of because of impermanence, everything is possible. You know, if we didn't have impermanence, the ink wouldn't come out of your pen, you wouldn't be able to burn gas in your car, you wouldn't be able to take the next breath. So I think it's I think it's okay to kind of fall in love with impermanence. And just on kind of a side note, too, here, I know sometimes we complain about these big trucks sitting out here. I think it's kind of good they're there. They're kind of a reminder that, you know, we don't really have control, and someday this wonderful place might be a parking lot or a warehouse or who knows, you know, so. Yeah.
1: Thank
0: you. My name's Alyssa. Um, I had an experience this week... um, that was new and wonderful. And in hearing you talk about impermanence, it's helping me put it into some context of like a spiritual growth. Um, and so my partner and I have been house hunting and we came in with a really firm um, budget that we thought we'd be comfortable with. And we've had endless discussions, which we often like talking about money together. So we've really had this solid idea of it sh- we wanted to, it to be a certain number and pretty low and um, we've always lived really frugally and that's been our identity and we we have a solid foundation coming from there and um, as we searched, we weren't finding we were finding that this idea that we felt so firm about may not, may not match reality, and it was causing a lot of internal strife that we were each handling differently. Maybe we need to go higher, maybe we need to go lower, maybe we need to move a a hour and a half outside the city. We just had all these ideas that could really drive you, we could drive ourselves mad, and, um, but, you know, I've also been, um, trying to practice this idea of generosity and giving freely and, you know, and not knowing. And, um, and, uh, we found something and it surprised us and it was outside of our comfort zone and it scared us. But what I thought was really great about our process was that we we for most of our life have really identified ourselves as like thriving in a certain amount of struggling. And I almost am embarrassed to talk about not struggling because I think that there's just, I identify with it and I find compassion when I'm personally struggling. I find it's, I think that's an easy way to connect and have compassion for other people who are struggling. So the idea of I might potentially not struggle in this purchase is like, Threatening to me, and what would I do with that? But then we started started to see the fruits of this beautiful home that we could have people over. <laughs> we could we people could feel really good in our home. People that have seen us struggle for so long maybe could rejoice, and it's um, interesting that that could fall into an, an imper- conversation of impermanence, that a personal growth of that nature, um, maybe coupled with gratitude, it's not, it's not, like there was a stinginess that we were, we were starting to maybe feel stingy. So I don't know. I just think that, um, I just really appreciate your talk on impermanence because I don't, want, I don't want to grasp and want and take, oh, now I, I saw it, I want it, I got it type of a thing. Um, but to just be able to kind of sit in the inquiry and just say, I have a lot of feelings about this and it's very unfamiliar and there was a letting go and it, and it feels true and it feels right. And um, so thank you. Yeah,
1: thank you. <laughs>
0: Hi, thank you very much for your talk. I have a question about what you said about having those thoughts coming and coming and coming and coming and to let them come, but how do you have an ending with them?
1: What do you mean, how do you have an ending with them?
0: Well, that they should stop coming. And what you were talking about endings, you know, yeah. I, I just yeah
1: yeah. Well, I, I think um, I think there there's uh, you know we want to be aware if we're if we're feeding something that's unwholesome that's making us suffering. Like if there's some unconscious fueling, but like in the state of sort of mindfulness of like just just it's important that it's really receptive. Like it's like. I'm not demanding any particular experience at all. I'm allowing, and it's very spacious. So whatever wants to present itself in my body, in my mind, and, and everything will have both physical and mental you know, components, right? My only job is to give it as much space as it needs, really, like to relax. And if this comes up, this needs to come up, and I, my job is to see it. Right? That's the diligence. It's just to see it, and that kind of attention can be really light. It doesn't need to be heavy. Right? It's not like, it's not like that. Seeing that thing a hundred times was heavy. It was quite light. It was quite joyous because I was I was anchored in space. Right, and it's quite. Um, you know as i was saying at the beginning like what are the qualities of mindfulness like when you're sitting like that's an important investigation what's what's the attitude in the mind what is the what are the qualities of the mind that's aware of what's happening right and when that quality of uh Venerable Analeo, he's he's used the word the kind embrace of mindfulness. I like that too. You know, a broad, kind embrace of the mind. Um, When that, it's a very relaxed uh, kind of mind, and can tolerate a hundred times. It doesn't need an ending. It doesn't need an ending to that. I was actually, I was actually grateful, like to to understand an ancient pattern that was operating in my mind. And still it's like, it's not like this is all in the was. This is still this is still real for me um, this, this instruction to myself to not control but to allow. but again, it's like I think the thing to and I, I feel like I'm saying a lot, but yeah the, the thing to be sensitive to is uh, yeah, the, the flavor of clinging and how we might feel, Fuel things that you know, like like in the way of if if I had, for instance, um, been grasping over Michelle's approval. If I had been grasping, like ah, oh, I want that. Like if there had been that, that's a fueling. That's not seeing clearly. That's a fueling, and that's going to send me into all kinds of cycles of suffering. But if it's just in the place of watching, anything goes. Yeah, and whatever it is, it's okay. That's one of Joseph Goldstein's most beautiful instructions. Whatever it is, it's okay. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Let's let's end with just a a little short reflection just about our own lives. (laughs) So I, I heard Marcia Rose, she's a teacher in our tradition, she said once, um, she said, asking the body not to age is like asking a leaf not to change color with the seasons. And I was thinking that statement could work for any change, like asking something not to change is like asking a leaf not to change color with the seasons. So I thought we could spend just a moment to identify something that we cherish in our life which is leaving us. Something that maybe we want to hold on to, but that's going away. Something that maybe is causing suffering with its departure. And again, this is just in the space of noticing, you know, noticing squeeze in the heart if there is one noticing the impulse to fix or to grasp we just open the space of our attention and stay soft in the body We can feel into this uncertainty.